Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cheers, you've got your chai brewing. Yes. I see over there. What's your preferred tea of choice? Uh, I really like matcha. Right, very nice. Um, I have a coffee first thing in the morning and then... To get the engines rolling. Yeah, but uh, matcha does the same, but it just doesn't give you the sort of speed as well. Yeah, yeah. I don't drink coffee, I can't. It makes me Mm. too... Too itchy. Too itchy. Can yeah, I just yeah. ask you to move in ever so slightly? Yeah, Is that yeah. okay? Yeah. I'll turn this up. You don't need to get yeah. too close, but just a little bit closer would be yeah. great. I've got to be honest, Penny, I've only been here about 15 minutes and I'm already not wanting to leave. Right. I'm in awe of this setup. Mm. Um, I guess let's begin with this house, this place. Mm. When did you move here and what was the decision to set up outside of what you might call conventional living? Uh, I moved here about... Uh, 50, yeah, it's 50 years, almost exactly. Wow. Um, initially, I moved here because I wanted somewhere quiet in the country to set up a studio because at that time I was largely a painter. Um, and at that time I was teaching in an art school, which is about 10 miles up the railway track from here. So um, this, I found this place. I used to spend weekends going out on my motorbike just looking for places because in those days there used to be a lot of um, country houses because people didn't want to live in the country are we talking mid 60s yeah Yeah. late late 60s and why do you think that was do you think the move was towards the city and 
in that sort of post-war boom? Mm. Do you think people mm. just wanted the mm. the cul-de-sac house with all mod cons and that kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, I think, you know, there, it was a sort of like that idea the war was over, let's modernise sort of yeah. thing in a sort of festival of Britain sort of way. And so there was a sort of like... Um, I suppose quite a few sort of people who came from a sort of more bohemian mindset like myself, you know, did the opposite. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, when I was at art school, I always visualised living in a sort of small flat in Soho, which in those days was... A the great, done thing. Really. Well, no, it wasn't really. It was no. a very arty place. Um, I guess quite dangerous and exciting yeah, as well, it was, right? it was. It was a great place to be. I mean, really edgy, but also very friendly. I mean, like, prostitution was out in the streets in those days, um, you know, completely open. And that was nice because you could sort of chat to the girls and that sort of stuff because it's not... I mean, and, and the prostitutes then weren't sort of, like, in it for the drugs because they'd been sort of screwed on that level. A lot of them were sort of, you know, poor women who finding a way of surviving. But it didn't have a sort of filthy, shitty edge. I'm sure there was parts of it. But generally, but that sort of thing. So there was these funny mixtures of sort of artists, um, sort of hoods and prostitutes, and it was a very, very wild... Um, and everybody coexisted happily. Yes, and there seemed to be this sense of making making a life for ourselves, you know, that wasn't quite what was generally expected of people in those days. Um, Where did you grow up? You're about 10 miles south of here, Brentwood. Okay, so this is still fairly local to... Yeah, yeah. And your family life, did you have brothers and sisters? Hmm, I had a brother and a sister. One of each. And were you close with those two? In a sort of abstract way. I mean, that's how our, our family was sort of very Victorian. I mean, Dad was archetypally Victorian in the sense that he was very distant. I mean, he was concerned and he looked after everyone and looked after everything very well, but he was a distant person. And... Um, I mean, I don't really particularly remember my brother or my sister. I mean, my sister's three years younger and my brother's three years older. But, I mean, I remember them over the last few years much more than I remember them back then when, you know, I hadn't got a lot to do with them. Um, I mean, I, I was the sort of black sheep in the family. I didn't... Dad was at war when I was born and didn't come back for three years. And when he did come back, I didn't particularly like him because he was intruding on, you know, the sort of we'd already we'd got we'd got it sorted. Thanks, we don't need this bloke wandering. In. So I took exception to him, and then increasingly over the years, I took exception to what he seemed to want to do with me. You know, he wanted to groom me to live in the real world, as he called it, and I wasn't very convinced by his idea of the real world, particularly having seen some pictures of Auschwitz in um, one of the books in their library when I was about five and, you know, at that age thinking, oh, well, that's what he was doing. He said, well, I definitely don't like him. I mean, it really was, you know, like that kid doesn't know better. And also I didn't know, I was so confused by it, you know, it was quite, probably quite a while before I sassed out that that probably wasn't what he was doing and that's what he was trying to stop people doing. But it, it wasn't clear initially. Um, Did the war take its toll on him? Oh, yeah, I think terribly, yeah. I mean, that's why he was a very silent person, as most of the most of the men I knew 
who'd been through that didn't talk about it. Mm. It's not something you want to talk about. I want to forget it, really, I guess. Yeah, it must have been such a different time to the world we now live in. Was he drafted or did he sign up voluntarily? Uh, he signed up, but he was a, he he and he was uh, he was a colonel, so he was sort of quite high <clears> rank. <throat> um, he was very very well awarded. He got he got um, kind of Legion of Honor, which was a French equivalent to, a, I think, to a Victoria Cross. I'm not sure. He was more honoured by the Americans and the French than he was actually by the British. Although he did get an MBE eventually for what he'd done in the war and after that but um, but no he was uh, I mean it's appalling that one could see in him the sort of tragedy of being forced to see that sort of thing and act within that sort of thing and even even more I think the tragedy of rather doubting it all he certainly had his big questions about Hiroshima and Nagasaki you know, I don't think he felt that that was justifiable on any cause. Although we never spoke really, it was all on innuendo and suggestion. I knew him. It wasn't really until, 50, you know, 60, 40, 50, I don't know how many years later when he got Alzheimer's. And then, then we became very close. You know, we seemed to meet up in a sort of Alice's Wonderland where we could have a in a great dialogue and then, I mean eventually it killed him but that was a sort of great journey meeting the person below all the veneers um, anyway so but so um, and your mother what did she do well she always wanted to be an actress and but, but and she gave up that with the idea of in marriage um, and she became the mother but is that where she, your love of the arts came from her side or was it more from within yourself uh, a bit of all of those things I think my love of the arts came from um, I very soon learned that you know by doodling and diddling I could be in my own world you know in my own world initially was sort of I used to love painting doilies I think they were little ornamental yeah yeah pieces of paper and I really used to love you know just minutely colouring them all in all different colours so they ended up looking like sort of Islamic <laughs> much to the horror of the family of course really. well, a little bit because <laughs> I mean, dad was always saying well, why don't you do something sensible like build he was always trying to get me to do airfix kits and make model aeroplanes and that sort of and I really wasn't interested I liked the sort of simplicity I was a great den uh, maker as I used to go and make little houses Anyway, we lived by a railway embankment, big one, going down and cutting, and there was all sorts of holes in it, and I could sort of make rabbit holes and, and, and occasionally huts and that sort of stuff, just for myself. No one else sort of came, really. That's a great joy of being a young boy, I think, isn't it, mm. Dens? I wonder if that's still what young people practice and do. I hope so. I mean, you I've, would hope I've, so, wouldn't you? I've practised it all my life. I mean, this is a but well, yeah, this is a glorified, yeah, yeah, yeah. magnificent den. Yeah, but it's the yeah. same theory, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that, and I think also, blokes, it, it's in their blood. They need a den. They need somewhere away from you know the sort of more domesticated, more humdrum existence yeah you know to have their thoughts i'm not necessarily saying it's a wonderful thing or anything but it seems that that's the case i mean you go to any 
allotment and you'll find men in huts sort of peering out the window, <laughs> yeah. not doing too much gardening. <laughs> Although it is being, I mean, I've noticed that, and I think it's true that now more and more women are becoming allotmenters <clears throat> or whatever they're called, and they're sort of out, out, outing the sort of older, older men peering out the window, the broken window with a pipe in their mouth. But, um, yeah... Uh, oh, well, anyway, Mum, yeah, so she, yeah, she was very gentle, very kind. They were both Northerners. Dad was from Tyneside. Mum was from um, Harrogate. And um, they adopted, uh, I mean, they're, and, they're, and they both came from sort of like working-class families, in fact. And they sort of adopted the affectations of the South. And, I mean, Mum spoke more plummy than the Queen, even. <laughs> um, and sort of rather insisted that, us was that to blend and, and uh, was that to blend in, as it were, and fit in with the new surroundings and yeah, and and you know, raise and yourself it was part of their their idea of chic. You know, they were yeah. very elegant people and lived in a very elegant house. And um, were you privately educated? Yeah. I was a, How did you get on with school? Well, I didn't really because I wasn't interested. I, um, I mean, I, I. Um, was expelled from two schools when I was 14. I was expelled from one, which was Brentwood School, which was a public school. For anything drastic or just no, not really. challenging just, thinking? Uh, well, it was sort of based around... We used to go down the coffee bar. Those were the days of coffee bars. Beatniks and jazz yeah, and things yeah. like that, yeah. And, uh, you know, we used to go down the one... I think it was called the Fomenko. It was down by Brentwood Station. And... You know, the high school girls would be there and we'd sort of, you know, me and a mate used to sort of sing blues and that sort of stuff. And then the, um, and smoke cigarettes and drink frothy coffee and then the local newspaper decided that public school boys shouldn't do that sort of thing. And so one day we were all in there and the door suddenly swung open and in... It was a bust. Yeah, and we were busted, dragged back to school. I mean, the other guys weren't... There was only actually three of us who were taken back to the school and the other two were academically very good. So apparently their crime of behaving badly and getting press reports was not sufficient to expel them. But because I was sort of a troublemaker anyway, they had, had me out, so... Does no, that I, instil from an early age a sort of resentment of authority? No. No? No, I've got no resentment. Of, I've got contempt for authority, not resentment. Um, you know, I've never had any um, resentfulness because, well, I'd, I'd never feel they've had one up on me. Um, you know, they. I'm certainly, you know, I'm not a victim of their sort of shenanigans. And I never felt that in any situation, you know, when I was sort of like much more involved in sort of street actions and that sort of stuff. That's a fair, fair game if you get nobbled, isn't it? You know, I mean, yeah. when MI5 were sort of investigating us, I didn't sort of think, well, I thought, well, great, you know, shows we're doing something, we're doing the right thing. We're on the thing, right track yeah. here, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, negative response from the authorities is a very positive thing. A badge right? of honour almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so was, was art specifically the first thing that set your sort of soul on fire as opposed to, say, music or poetry? Was it originally drawings and paintings and, and visual art uh, yeah it was it was drawing and painting um, which pretty soon well I suppose in my early teens I started writing seriously 
Well, seriously, yeah, it was seriously. I, was, I started writing poetries and plays and essays and that sort of thing. Um, because there were things I couldn't express that I wanted to express, you know, couldn't express in painting or drawing that I could express by writing. And actually then, in, you know, almost progressively, although I went to art school and I, I didn't write actually so much when I was art school, it was never far away from me writing. Writing has always been a way that I find deep expression or a different sort of deep expression to painting. Um, Am I right in thinking quite early on you got a couple of fairly notable sort of recognitions within the art world as well? Did you get offered a place to go work at the factory with Andy Warhol? Is that right? It was on the cards. And now I can't remember the other guy. There was a guy on the in L.A., um, Fairbanks Jr., comes to mind. Anyway, he was running a sort of similar thing to Warhol. And... Um, I was offered a job there. I was that was straightforward. I, you know, did I want to go there? It, it, it came out of when I was at art school. I decided I wanted to become a billboard painter because I was doing a lot of pop art, big pop art paintings, and the obvious thing was to become a billboard painter because in those days, you know, some places like you know, um, Era, where else? Eros is that Trafalgar? Yeah, Trafalgar Square. No, not Tra- Leicester Square. It was all hand painted stuff. You know, and all the theatres had huge hand-painted things, and they were sort of like real pop art. Yeah. You know, pop art in its origin, if you like. So I died, and there was a lot of huge studios in in the where that area where London Airport is now. Um, you know, that that side of the river, and um, great big warehouses doing these fabulous, great paintings on the so I went there and oh, I was in awe it was fantastic walking in it was like being in heaven like sort of 30 foot figures to paint and they looked at my folder and I said and they said no you're too much of an artist wow that was which was a <laughs> terrible disappointment yeah but, you know they wanted work people basically yeah. and I wanted to work but they weren't going to have a they I think they knew that I'd be tiddling around um going off brief yeah yeah way, yeah so I wish I could remember. It was, I'm sure it was, was it Douglas Fairbanks? Yeah, Douglas yeah, Fairbanks, Douglas yeah. Fairbanks Jr. Right. You'd have to look into it, but he had, he was running some sort of art thing. Anyway, I was offered a job at that. And I wrote to Andy as well, Warhol, uh, and that wasn't that wasn't really open. I mean, I, I if I'd gone, I could probably have worked Made it happen. my way in, but um, I wasn't actually offered anything like that. And there was, was there a moment on the famous 60s music television show, Ready, Steady, Go? Yeah. And you were presented with an award of some Mm. kind, right? You'd done a painting to symbolise the Beatles song, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Am I right? Well, it was, yeah, that's right. I mean, but it was a a sort of, uh, they they had a competition for the best painting of the Beatles and mine one, which did, um, was based around I Want to Hold Your Hand. Um, won the award, and you got to meet John, right? Yes. What was it? What was your impressions of him? Um, they were all smaller. Everyone was smaller than I expected them to be. <laughs> um, I mean, they were going round the um, all the all the all the not all, you know, the better paintings that were 
entered for the competition were hanging all around the studio. And they were sort of going around marking them. So I, you know, I firmly told them I didn't want them piddling around on my one, which was probably not a terribly good start. Um, or maybe they went, oh, we see the fire in this guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and then I was meant to go and meet them all afterwards. I mean, we were there all day. And I mean, the funny thing was that, that they, um, I saw them do the rehearsal of interviews and then I saw the real interviews and, that, you know, how they'd sort of come up with much better answers, funnier answers. Um, I think George was asked who his most favourite actress was and he, you know, said Bridget Bardo, which would, I would have said very quickly. But then when the show was on, it was Margaret Rutherford. And so, you know, they, <laughs> yeah. they became... I realised then that some of... You know what they did was not contrived, but you know they weren't. They were savvy, weren't they? Yes, they were savvy. I remember watching for a film project for the first time the Hard Day's Night movie. Oh yeah, yeah. And there's all the scenes in that, just the interaction between all of them. Mm. You can see really beyond the music they made and the art mm. they created mm. why they became that, mm. you know, global institution that they mm. did because mm. they were so leaps and bounds ahead of their contemporaries and as public personalities, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. There's mean, one they scene still where, are. yeah. They're still, I find, so listenable and without any sense of it being dated. I mean, most of the other music of that era has got a dated element. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I still listen to their stuff and in awe the, of the sort of beauty of it and the meaningfulness of it as well. In fact, I mean, they had, they had it on both fronts, didn't they? Very, very clever people. Were you a little bit older than some of the, the punk kids? that set up the sort of 77 school of punk rock. Yeah, yeah, I mean, by 10 years. So when did you meet Steve and how did that... Because well, that's that the seeds about, of Crass, you know, right? Um, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just bang in that my musical background, that was one thing that I did enjoy at school and I was very successful. That was, I was a really successful treble in the choir. And I was actually offered a place at Westminster. Wow. Um, but my parents didn't want me to become a boarder, which is stupid because probably I'd have done really well there because I was very, you know, people really liked my voice and I did a lot of it and I liked doing it. I never became a usable alto, so, you know, like many yeah. trebles, my days were over when I was about 12. Um, and that's when I actually started really fighting back because there wasn't anything, you know, meaningfully fighting back because there wasn't anything there for me before I had this joy of being in the choir we used to travel around all the cathedrals in southern uh, southern England and I really enjoyed that and I loved the music um, and I learned from the music and um, I mean notably Britain I mean I was in uh, I was selected to be part of the choir for it was a choir from various schools and things for the first um performance um, of his Spring Symphony in this country. I think its first ever performance was in Germany, but anyway, and he was conducting it, so, you know, I got to know him slightly, um, and he always had time to explain things. A lovely, lovely man. And that's when I fell in love with his music, and him a bit, and then um, it was the war requiem several years later than that that, uh, that first introduced me to 
um, Wilfred Owen's poems to the idea, whereas Wilfred Owen obviously wasn't a pacifist, um, Benjamin Britten most certainly was a pacifist. Um, and um, that combination sort of, you know, for a kid of you know, 14 or whatever I was by then, you know, that was very inspirational. You know, there are other ways within my father's world that we can do good, that we can make a better life. You know, up until that point, I felt a bit lost, you know, because to my mind, it was all a big lie. There wasn't anyone doing anything to try and counter that lie, but <clears throat> certainly, you know, and then it's flooded in, you know, first of all, it was sort of Britain and his music, Owen and his poetry, and then I started sort of reading The Angry Young Man, Colin Wilson, people like that. I uh, read Francois Sagan and learnt about sex and you know all that stuff was really happening in the 60s uh, you know and, uh, and once the sort of curtain was opened I just fell into this sort of beautiful world of possibilities most notable in those probably was also being introduced to Zen Buddhism when I was about 14 by an American artist and I couldn't make sense of it, you know, uh, I didn't understand it. And it's only over the last 10 years that I've learned that the only way you can understand Zen Buddhism is by not understanding it. You know, that's the very point. Um, kind of like the more we know, the less we know yeah, as well. Yeah, totally, exactly that. And um, and I wrote it, I mean, but that, that became, it was almost like Zen and it sort of... More in it, I, I guess, more in its sort of beatnik interpretation, in the sort of interpretation that notably Kerouac brought to it. Yeah. Um, became very, very inspiring for me. I mean, I like the sort of the, the maverick nature of it. Um, the freedom as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't aware of the full freedom of it, and it's only in the last 10 years that I've been, you know, become a sort of serious practitioner not in Zen but in Zen and Taoist thinking and study and contemplation and meditation um, and then, but at the time I you know I realized how huge well, I realize now looking back at the time how hugely I was given a, a real basis and a route to sort of base my protest base my dissent in um, so I was never at war, it was more, I was never against as much as for, for what I could feel as a sort of developing inward thing, uh, rather than trying to change what was out there. I realised really early on that actually it's what happens inside that makes the real change. So Hence that, there's no authority but yourself. Yes, totally, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which became, we can maybe talk about that later, it became sort of misconstrued and understood by a lot of people as a sort of licence for hedonism and yeah. general sort of crappy behaviour, which, of course, it wasn't intended as. Um, but like a lot of those slogans and things, they can always be interpreted. And, and punk as a whole movement, right, kind of got misconstrued yeah, yeah. in that way yes it did yeah. because for me I'm 32 so I missed it but mm. I've obviously gone back and explored and mm. you know dived in head first mm. into all the theory and everything behind it and the ideology mm. and for me it seemed to start out as about individualism yeah, yeah. Yeah. and I mean there's that old mod phrase as well because for me 
I think I heard you say this in an interview as well. A lot of those youth movements are all one and the same for me, mm-hmm. whether it's beat or hippieism mm-hmm. or mod mm-hmm. or, or punk. And there's a quote in relation to mod that always stood out for me, which is clean living in dirty times. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. Yeah. And it's good. And it's yeah. about that same idea, I think, yeah. of establishing yourself in this world and trying to make sense of it in a way that makes sense to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all of that. Yeah. Um, was Bob Dylan someone who spoke to you? Not particularly, no, not until much later. Um, I mean, I knew about him, you know, when I was at art school. Partly because the Beatles became very fond of him for a while and they sort of worked together. But... um, I think he was the guy that introduced them to Hash, wasn't it? Yeah, probably, yeah, yeah. He certainly introduced them to a sort of more abstract um, way of, of thought. Um, you know, that was a time at which you know they started really playing around with words much more and sort of breaking loose a bit. Um, I mean, I love you know Masters of War. I think it has to be one of the greatest protest songs ever written. It's just fabulous, um, and I love, I really, really love some of it as well. I don't, I can't pretend to fully understand it. It's too oblique. Yeah, um, I re- I admire that. Massively, but I don't much. I, I haven't much cared for a lot of his music. Um, I, he's one of those guys I'm really glad he's around, but you know I, I don't spend too much time. Do you like artists to be more to the point and straightforward and open and direct? Perhaps not necessarily. Well, I, but but if I. Um, <clears throat> I was always, I have to confess, to, I was always a bit suspicious of, of, of Dylan for some reason. I, he, he, there was something which didn't ring quite right. He's very chameleon-like, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Which isn't, I mean, I don't necessarily think being chameleon is a bad thing, but it was something I, I he didn't quite grip me. <laughs> there was something sort of inauthentic in my... Yeah, yeah. My terms. Well, he kind of assumed the Woody Guthrie protest folk singer mm. role mm. and then obviously went electric and then he had the kind of Christian phase mm. and he had a lot of different phases, mm. didn't he, that were quite a, directly opposed to each mm. other perhaps mm. in their mm. core mm. and he seemed to shift. But, but, I mean, that said, though, I mean, I just feel that those early songs were just... Uh, um, I can't remember that line, how do you make the world bigger bring on Bridget Pardo or something I mean there was some crazy line like that and he just keeps coming back to Bridget Bardo yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's just that um, that was dead right you know the, um, he just hit hit it right perfectly for, for some lines and the Masters of War has got line after line I mean I wish I could have written that that's what I like about his stuff is it's almost kind of hip hop isn't it mm. oh, yeah, 20, yeah. 30 years mm. before mm. just mm. the rapid fire machine gun mm. delivery and it's mm. like line after line after mm. line after mm. line just keep mm. the barrage keeps coming doesn't it yeah yeah. in fact it's funny I've been listening to Winey quite a bit recently and that's uh, that's someone who I could almost see a yeah. lineage yeah absolutely although like Wiley actually was on television a few weeks back and he quoted one of my songs really as part of his lineage so that was very nice but Great. nonetheless I mean I could hear more of Dylan than myself in what Wiley does and particularly in delivery 
and I'm sure it's not a direct thing, but it's all part of what happens, isn't it? You know, yeah. People open up doors. So let's bring it back to the dial house. So yeah, yeah. You, you're, you're kind of you're on your bike, you're out in the countryside, you're mm. trying to find a location mm. initially to just find some quiet, secluded space to mm. create art. Mm. Um, you find this property. Is mm. it just you at this stage or are you with... No, it's just me. It's just initially. you. Yeah, I mean, I, used, I, I was at that time in, in a relationship with G... And, you know, which isn't any longer a sort of, you know, sexual relationship, but we've been... And she still lives here. Um, we've known each other since art school days. And, I mean, we're creative um, partners, really, very much. I mean, I have to include Eve in that because I've done so much work with her as well. But, you know, I've lived and worked every, you know, every day of my life for 50 years with G somewhere around. Um, so she's right here. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. She's a very, very important part of my life. Um, How did you two meet then? At art school. At art school. Yeah. Yeah. And you said I'm going off to find this place, and yeah, I mean, well, we got on really well at art school. She came from a very, you know, um, underprivileged, um, but very poor East End family. They were they were living in Dagenham, and I mean that really was an eye opener for me. I mean, I come you know through my trajectory in public school and considerable wealth, and you know it was sort of wonderful to be accepted with open arms in a sort of community. That's not that probably wouldn't have been easy for me in in any other way. So was, you know, I learned a lot through a hell of a lot. You know, my politics obviously were very much affected by that, um, and it confirmed so much of what I felt was happening, but I wasn't privy to before. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, um, when I left art school, I was still living with my parents because I, I always thought well I'm not going to move anywhere until I can find somewhere as nice if, if not nicer than what I've got I had a lovely huge smart man yes <laughs> um, so I didn't need I would think I was about 22 when I left home finally um, and G and myself or just myself used to motorcycle all over the Essex countryside right down to the coast as well I mean I was happy to go anywhere but then this one we found this one which was sort of semi-derelict and so I moved in on my own. And for the first six months, I lived on my own here. Because, I mean, it was... You wouldn't have wanted anyone else to, to tolerate the rats and the mice and the sort of fungi. And I mean, it was a d- total dump. It looked all right on the outside, oddly enough. Were all these outhouses here then no, as well? It was, no. it was just the main house then, wasn't it? main house and, and what was the garage, sort of like storeroom to the main house, which is to the side of the yeah. house. But no, we built all the rest of it. Um, and did you did you buy it? How did you acquire no, no, it? We, well, we had, got it three years rent free to start because we were in such a mess that wow. we were just giving it to do what we wanted with. And then um, and then uh, we paid only eighty quid a year um, from then on uh, for years. And then the land got bought. Because it, it, it was a tenanted farm, the land, the, uh, the land was owned by GPO, and they tenanted it, uh, the, the post office, and, they, and, and so they had tenant farmers on it. Then British Telecom took over all of um, the um, post office land, and they saw the development potential in it. Isn't that an interesting? 
kind of historical trace. Obviously, the post office would be the original form of communication, mm. and then the telephone age comes in, and it's BT, mm. and then mm. obviously now it would probably well, be a Google Marconi. or a Facebook. It's a, this it's man, a, yeah, that's absolutely it's strange, right. isn't it? It originated actually with Marconi here. Marconi, it was a Marconi radio. Uh, wow, okay, there you go. Station. Yeah, so it's all linked to communication yeah. somehow. And the military moved in for a while, and they had. There was a huge mast just outside there, which was a Polaris mast, which I not deliberately put out of operation with a kite which got wrapped around it, and apparently for about two weeks. But that mast was not operating, so it would have been a good time for an attack from Russia. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, there we are. Uh, so you're cultivating the land and building up the house and making yeah, it yeah, livable. Yeah, and, and so for the first six months I was pretty much on my own and then I was teaching at the art school which was about ten miles up from here at Loughton and um, <clears throat> this embankment at the bottom of the garden is used to be the underground central line all the way out another four miles and it closed eventually but in those days it was still operating so almost the, right underneath where we are now yeah, just there. Wow. Just at the end of the garden. I was amazed it went all the way to Epping, because we yeah. got, got the overground to Chingford when I was here last oh, week. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you oh, can right. just get the tube. It's, it's mad that in one hour... Were from... you here last time, then? Last week, yeah, um, I was here in the Epping Forest. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, I no, no, this is my first time yeah, yeah, here. Yeah, that's what I thought. But it's, it's so crazy that in one hour you can be from Oxford Street oh, yeah, to yeah. sat here with you by the fire. Mm, 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 no, and it feels yeah. like a world away. Mm, mm. Mm. That's the beauty. And actually, of it. back then, it felt even more like a world away. Yeah, it really felt I bet. like a world away. But anyway, so the, the, the underground train used to run beyond Epping and along here. Now they run a sort of little tourist line at the weekend, sort of thing. But the drivers, you, well, once they got to know me, which they did because I'd see them at the station, once they got to know I lived here, on the days I was teaching, they'd stop on the track there and honk. And then I'd bung my cup into the uh, kitchen sink and then run up the embankment and leap on. And then they'd drop me off there as well, which was lovely. So Amazing. I had my own personal train <laughs> service, which was very sorry. The sort of thing that just wouldn't happen nowadays. No. Simpler, better times in many ways. What do the neighbours think of this place round? Is it sort of one of those houses that has a reputation in the oh, local yeah. neighbourhood? Hmm. Do they yeah. embrace it? Do they? Yeah, we're still the students over the hill, but despite the fact that we're, you know, I'm in my mid seventies. Is that how old you are, Penny? Yeah. Wow, and the, um, looking good. So, yeah, we're referred to as the students over the hill. <laughs> um, but and uh, we uh, initially we were quite. Oh, I think we were sort of treated with a slight amount of caution as sort of auditors. But when we had this big battle with British Telecom, you know, because they wanted to develop this land into a sort of uh, leisure oh. facilities for the wealthy and a big hotel. And right, right. Chalets and that sort of stuff. For the Essex housewives, as it were, yeah. Yes. Um, and... Um, um, we formed an action group to oppose it and... Um, won eventually a long ten year battle but the um, at that point um, you know people were so impressed and so grateful as well because I mean there's a great tradition here of, of sort of fairly free use of the land 
that you walked over to get here. Yeah. That's always been open. And Telecom would definitely have closed that down. So, you know, it wasn't entirely nimbyism that, um, that we were fighting. I mean, obviously we wanted to preserve what we'd got here, but equally well, we wanted to preserve all the land. And partly, this is a, um, it's, it's 700 acres of, of, it's the oldest deer park in Britain. Wow. And, that, and it's still got most of its old um, moats and, hed, and hedgerows intact. Um, I mean, it's no huge, great deal, but there's been no development on this land for 400 years, except that one house there, which, um, which was a sort of huge... Um, council swindle, um, but um, so it had it had value, it had meaning. Uh, Oliver Rackham, who's I don't know whether you know, if you say uh, Oxford, or oh, might have been Cambridge. I know he was Cambridge. Don, who um, was one of the greatest experts on British forest, and he really he became a very strong part of our defence of the land against development. Anyway, we won after ten. Yes. Um, Do you own the place now? Is it your, yeah, is it we, your property? Um, yeah. We were sort of obliged to buy it. Really, I never wanted to buy it anywhere. I mean, we'd lived here for virtually nothing for years and forever. Um, oh, that's where we're coming to. Yeah. When um, so, I paid it. Paid nothing at all, really, for it until British Telecom took over. They wanted to get rid of me, so us. So um, they wouldn't take accept the rent, but what I used to do is put the same rent. I, I, I put ninety quid in to cover it um, a year um, into an account. So there's no way they could say that I hadn't, you know, as a part of my defence. Anyway, after, when we won after ten years, they wrote and said, "Okay, well, we want the rent," and we all, you know, and they boosted it up somehow. I can't remember how. And no, they boosted it up when they weren't accepting it as well. That's right, they weren't accepting the rent, but they put it up. You know, just like a weird thing to do. Trying but, to come at you from both yes. sides, yeah. Um, Sneaky. But anyway, so what I did was just put it, you know, I, I got a builder in to estimate, give me an estimate and all the work I'd done, which was 15, 20 times more than they were looking to. I said, fine, you pay the expenses, I'll pay the rent. You know, and I never heard from them again. So we'd actually got away with years and years and years of either living for nothing here or for, you know, seriously peanut rent. I mean, I worked it out once that we'd, we'd paid no more than 2,000 quid. I sat around that. I can't remember what it was, but it was something like 2,000 quid over all the years. Wow. We've been here. And that's so important, isn't it? If you look at the historical movements and the great sort of rises in artistic wealth of, you know, whether it's music or painting or whatever, New York in the 70s mm. would have been one of those key mm. times and places. Mm. And the major factor in a lot of that beauty and excitement being created is that people could afford to live either free or extremely cheaply yeah, yeah, yeah. and allow themselves the time and the space to... Yeah. Yeah. to pursue the arts and it's yeah. obviously so hard in today's world isn't it it's a completely different world now yes it is places I like mean, new york london i yeah. mean inaffordable even to people with well-paid jobs no absolutely it is but i mean there is still a sort of flee to the countryside option yeah i mean it's more difficult and you have to go to some pretty i mean this 
this felt so isolated at the time, unbelievably, you know, but I mean, I could have been, uh, the equivalent would be maybe moving to mid-Wales now yeah. in terms of its isolated quality. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. The, the, the opportunities are far fewer now, which is why, you know, progressively this house became somewhere where people could come and hopefully realise at least some of those opportunities, you know, in the sort of open nature of the house. When does that start? When does that become the characteristics that define this place? Well, I'd lived here for... uh, I was teaching. I became very disillusioned with teaching. Not, I mean, I loved the students. I had a fantastic relationship with them. But I really didn't like the staff. I didn't like the attitude. I didn't like the institutional nature of it, I didn't like the fact that they were sort of, you know, there's quite a lot of what I consider to be unhealthy relationships between the staff and the students, you know, which I never got involved with. Right, right. Set on an exceedingly critical way, which alienated me a lot from the staff, but not from the students. And then um, <clears throat> eventually I was, I was sort of nudged out to the point where I I've never known quite whether I resigned or or whether I was nudged out, but either way, it was a good thing. And the students wanted to sort of come with me, if you like. They knew what was going on, and, you know, a big body of them got together and said, well, you know, we're forming a committee and we're going to fight your cause. I said, look, you've come here to study art and not get into politics. I'm off. And, to get into politics. Yeah. <laughs> and I um, I was sort of... I sort of regretted it because that was the year, and I can't remember, I think it might have been 68, 67, something like that, when um, Hornsey blew up, you know, and all the all the art schools and yeah. universities, you know, a few months after I'd walked out. And in a way, if I'd hung on just that bit longer, then I'd have been part of a sort of huge thing, and, you know, that college, Loughton College of Art, would have definitely been a part of it. But I was gone by then. Um, and it's not a re- well, no, it's not a regret, but it's something that if I there's very few things in my life that if I had exactly the same life again, I'd make different decisions about and that one, that'd, that'd be, be one, one you know, it would been great to have been part of that whole thing, you know, and I think it sort of probably, I think it was about the time of the Sorbonne in Paris and blah 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 um, maybe a bit after that um Missed out on that. Anyway, so I, 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 I came back here, and by then there was two other teachers from the art school living here. So I said, well, I, I don't like the way we're living. Um, you know, I'm done with any form of sort of professional thinking. I don't like the idea that we've all got separate cupboards to keep our food in, and we're living sort of... We're not living together, we're just living in the same house. I said, oh, I want to take all the locks off the doors and I want to see what happens. And they just scarpered, basically. Said, oh, no. <laughs> really? Yeah. And, um, <laughs> they weren't having any of that. Um, they weren't down. <laughs> no, so um, they were gone. I wanted to do it. I mean, I, I, uh, I'd seen the, the film, the in of the, I always forget which, Sixth or Seventh Happiness. And it was about, uh, well, it was about lots of things, but one of the features in it was, this tradition in China at one time where people could have a bed for the night and a meal, you know, for telling their story, you know, that's how you pay by telling your story. 
And I was very entranced by that as an idea. I thought, oh, that is lovely, I want to do that. So that's the seed right there. Yeah, that is the wow. seed. Wow. Yeah, very much so, the inspiration. I mean, it wasn't until several years later that I came out of my own sort of isolation here, if you like, um, <clears throat> and realised by then, you know, the a, a commune movement was... Um, developing, which wasn't the same thing at all. A commune and an open house are very different things. So I wasn't attracted entirely to them, and they generally, generally, communes had some sort of ideology, Buddhist or or whatever. Or at the darker end of the spectrum, or, it was often like one guy who used that free love principle as an excuse yes. to just sleep with loads of women, yes, right? Totally, all of that. Stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'd seen that at the art school, so I wasn't going to have that. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, that's a feature in everything. Politics, religion, isn't it? I mean, yeah. the dark guy in the dark room. Yeah. <laughs> really rather tedious. Um, it must have been really, and still, well, pro- probably more so now, a very unique setup in that sense then, that there is no overriding ideology at it the was, cure it of it. It was, and, it was uh, and, and I felt quite alone with it, and I didn't really know what I was doing. All I knew that well, I didn't want to impose anything I didn't want to I didn't advertise I didn't say anything about it you know the first person who lived here I was working on I, I worked on the farm in summer and as a coalman in winter for about five or six years and um, um, that's how I you know, managed to get me food and stuff and um, one day I was, I was picking potatoes and this young long-haired youth appeared and I said to you I was Jerry in those days I hadn't changed my name at that point he said are you Jerry I said yeah he said you've got, you got somewhere to live mate I said well yeah I have actually and I was jolly pleased someone had turned up because I didn't know how you got people I mean I was just sitting around waiting so he moved in and then eventually his girlfriend moved in um, and then eventually they moved out about six months ago and she nicked all of G's knickers um, and it was funny, all that sort of stuff. Stuff would come and go. People, people and objects and books, mostly. And the most nicked book... Go on. Scum Manifesto, which is amazing. So how many times has that been replaced here? Probably five or six. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, which is quite extraordinary. And that's the top nicking book, uh, which is, I think, very odd. You'd think it might have been something a bit more um, <laughs> accessible. Yeah, yeah. Anyway... Did it ever get out of hand? Did it ever get out of control with people? No. no. It was always sort of monitored in a, a loose way, but in a self-contained... Not even... Mo- not really monitored. Um, I mean, I think the greatest monitor is just to say, well, hi, and not and to mean it, and not to sort of make people immediately uncomfortable, which I'm not saying that that, you know, doesn't happen. It certainly does happen. Um, but... More just allowing people to be who and what they are, and they'll find their own way. Uh, I mean, initially, I remember. I mean, by the time the first guy moved in and his girlfriend, and then I think there was about seven people living here, and they never used to do anything. And I was sort of, I mean, I sort of thought, well, it's a funny old way of living. But so I'd go off to work on. It was a winter, and I'd go off at you know about half past six in the morning when it was still dark, catch the first train down to Onga where the coal yard was, come back about six at night, and no-one had done anything. They were still sitting in the back room chatting. And that went on and on. I never did actually sort of say, well, look, 
you know, I could do with a bit of help here. Around the house, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. getting the food and yeah. all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was sort of pretty... But it didn't last, because, I mean, somehow that I... I don't know how it changed either. Just through not saying, look, I want you to... People started maybe realising, and you know, people will realise in their own time, if, as long as they're not sort of bullied or battered or pushed off somewhere else. Yeah. And sometimes one doesn't have, you know, I mean, we've had people here who've been given the space and they've abused it. Um, what do you do in that situation? Let them carry on, you know. You do? I mean, if they bec- if they become physically... Um, I mean, you had an alcoholic living here who, you know, had, he was in one of the sheds, I mean, and I, it was the shed near the wood woodshed, you know, and I'd spend be spending my day chopping wood and hearing him singing and burping and shitting his life out. Like something out of a Charles Dickens book, yeah. Uh, like some was, really, yeah. <laughs> um, I... If if I could smell any alcohol in his breast, then if need be, I would forcibly put him out of the house because I, you know he, I, my ruling was you do what you like in your own living space, but you do not bring your drunkenness into the house. Yeah. So if he was straight, which he was a lot of the time, beautiful, fantastic artist, um, beautiful stuff, and then he'd go on a bender and, he, and they'd go on and on and on. And he never had any money, but he always seemed to have money for drink, which is a common feature of all sort of junkies and, yeah, yeah. and alcoholics, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But we've only had to um, sort of ask. <laughs> evict, you can say. <laughs> yeah, well, evict two people. He was one of them. In 50 years, 40 yeah. years, 50. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Mm. Mm. That's great. Mm. I mean, the... It's such, a, it's such a beautiful and unique idea to me. It does still exist when you travel abroad and you stay in hostels. Mm. It still exists to a, a certain extent mm. there. You can be in the kitchen sharing utensils mm. and things like that. And mm. you find that people who commit to that way of life have a certain way about them and it does lend itself quite well to cohabitation. Oh yeah yeah. But there is occasionally that kind of one element that throws everything off balance. But I think it is rare. I think you can kind of naturally find that groove, can't you, which you've obviously done. Yeah, yeah. And no, I mean I think I think um I mean in my experience I can almost guarantee that if people have got some sort of Buddhist background, then they're gonna find it a lot easier because you know there's no sort of ideological yeah. ideological battles going on within Buddhism. I mean, there are different schools of Buddhism, and I don't happen to follow any of the school of Buddhism. I like Zen, but but I do. I have found that you know that's almost a guarantee that people are going to at least have some sort of like level of kindness that might be more difficult elsewhere. Which is not to say it's unique to them by any means whatsoever, um, but. Um, and I also believe that if people are allowed to be themselves, then that self is going to be an awful kinder and better self than what they are trapped within. It's a bit like, you know, chained dogs are downright dangerous, and most dogs running wild are not at all dangerous. They'll, they'll get out of your way. 
I'm not going to start barking and jumping at you, but put a dog on a chain and it will become dangerous. And that's how most people, in a way, live on with chains. So they're sort of potentially dangerous because they're so self-protective. Obviously, a dog's dangerous when it's like that because it can't actually defend itself. Yeah. You know, it's very vulnerable. It can't escape. And if you're so ta- if you're if you're sort of chained to ideas, as much as a wall, you can't escape. You know, and so that sort of I mean that's a sort of Zen thing. You know, the less you have in your head, the freer you are. You know, freedom isn't an idea. It, it, freedom becomes freedom when there's no idea, nothing to get in the way of the very nature of life, which is freedom. So. You mentioned earlier on about how the the genesis and the kind of seed for this place was this idea of people come through, share their stories or create or contribute. Did you have to introduce any sort of financial monetary system at any point or do you now where people pay rent of any kind? <clears throat> it depends on them entirely and it depends on the conditions entirely. Um I sometimes, if people say, I want to, you know, would it be possible to live there for six months, a year or whatever, or say, well, you know, what sort of resources do you have, da dee da dee da dee and then, you know, I I, I might set an absolute minimal um, rent. Very often we don't. I mean, if people are simply staying, I don't ask for anything. It's lovely when people actually realise that, you know, food and heating and everything costs money. Yeah. And say, oh, here's... Because it does, doesn't it? Even with the sustainable living, um, there's still actual Mm. financial sort Mm. of Mm. requirements, Mm. isn't there? Mm. But we've had people here who are mentally not equipped to sort of cope with, you know, the material world, and they've lived entirely off us, and other people... You know, we we'll sort of see that sponging, and I mean, we had to be very careful that it, you know, that it isn't easy sponging. That somehow or other, you know, we're trying to help creatively because it can go into the negative. You know, when someone yeah, yeah. realizes they don't have to do anything, and that's in their sort of fucked up nature. Um, and if they just continually are unable to see that, then that can create serious problems. But I mean, my great inspiration on that level, you know, having felt I was on my own, was R.D. Lang and his anti-hospitals, um, hospital. And, um, you know, I realised that someone was doing what I was trying to do, but within the sort of framework of sort of psychiatric and mental health. Um, but, I mean, his attitude was very much, well, you're who you are, just be who you are, and then you come out of it or not. That's your business. Um... And you're much more likely to come out if you're just left alone. And that, I mean, it happens to be entirely my attitude towards all forms of mental yeah. disturbance or illness or whatever you want to call it. My mum's a manic depressive, mm-hmm. and um, when she's well and she's quote unquote sane, she's very quiet and timid and, and doesn't really go out and about or. And she's been well for quite a while now, but when she would have episodes. Mm-hmm. In the past, she would completely break out and she'd get in a car and drive off. And I always found that it was just her way of trying to just crash through 
um, the walls which life had put in front yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah, totally. And yeah, yeah. I feel like if you were away somewhere secluded and safe, like somewhere like this, yeah, yeah. there's really nothing that can go wrong. The yeah. worry, obviously, when she's in a car or driving down a motorway is yeah, yeah, yeah. she's going to harm herself or others. Yeah, yeah. And it, it is a funny thing, isn't it? Because I think people try and either, you know, through self-medication or back in the yeah, day yeah. through psychotherapy and things like that, is they try and almost hammer or batter it out. Oh, it's yeah, like, yeah. Well, and, and almost that sort of game, sort of go out sort of like this. Um, Zenist thought, you know, that the, the moment you you start defining and isolating those things, then you're compounding them. Yeah. You know, so you're doing the very opposite to yourself. Feeding Wanting them, yeah. to be better is not being better. Um, you know, you're just feeding feeding the devils, really. Um, you know, the more. And the more I get involved in that way of thought, you know, the less and less I'm in the way of it, which is how I come to be involved in it. And the net result is considerable sense of peace and calm. It doesn't mean I become unaware. I I become more able to be aware of the sort of injustices and the suffering and the you know, sometime horror of the material world, and, but and more capable of trying to do something about it because I'm not being emotionally um, pressed down by it. You know, I'm not suffering any sense of fear, which is how people. I mean, if anything holds the world, the material world together, it's fear. Is there anything you fear? No. 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 What a great way to live. Mm. Mm. Nothing at all. No. Brilliant. No. I mean, I'm not altogether fond of rats. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, I don't fear them. I just not, don't like them. I don't like it when the cat brings You them. haven't got a fear of every time you step out the door, a rat's going to come and eat your toes. No, no, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. No. Great. I just don't like it when the cat brings them alive. Or <laughs> I have to do Gifted with it, it to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Can we talk about Crass Penny? How, yeah. how does a, you know, a, a, a slightly older, more reflective, zen gentleman like yourself become involved in that movement? 
I'd love to know the story of well, you. Well, largely because it was no different to the movement that I've always been involved in, which was how do you make things better? You know, how do you get out of this real world? My, I mean, I was never in it, so I didn't have that problem. Um, um, but, you know, I could see the people around me were trapped within it. And, I, and so my thing, whether it was as a hippie or a beatnik or a bohemian or as a zenist or as a or just an middle artist. class twit or whatever I mean it's no concern to me I mean I I didn't feel any different doing the crass thing than I had doing the exit you yeah. know, which was another band we had before crass which was in, in many respects far more radical than than crass was far more political in its utter waywardness and maverick nature I mean it was an avant-garde happenings group um and so I, I didn't, I mean, I didn't notice the difference. And, you know, when I wasn't doing that, I still didn't notice the difference because there are things to be done, you know. And I don't, the writing I do now or the recordings I do or the paintings I do or the walks I go on or the bread I make is what I'm doing. So I don't feel, I didn't feel strange. Other people used to sort of, respond to me as if I ought to do you know because yeah. I was so old <laughs> uh, I think me and Charlie Harper are the sort of Charlie man I'm seeing yeah. him next week oh, in the, yeah. the Rock Awards yeah, oh, yeah, yeah still well, doing it man yeah, still in that yeah. van just playing yeah, club shows all over the world love, you, I definitely he's, will yeah he's another little sweetheart he's a lifer isn't he yeah 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 um, and I mean the thing I loved about Charlie really was because he's I mean he really was in it for the people for the kids yeah you know he wanted people to have a good time and it was very fundamental and sort of very real I mean I was much more contrived than that in the sense that in a way um, punk was a very convenient platform for ideas not that I didn't enjoy Elements. I mean, I pushed Crass towards a much more sort of avant-garde approach to music because I wasn't actually interested in rock and roll. Sort of more Dadaist situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wasn't really. I mean, I sort of quite like people like Clash and the Pistols, but I mean, that was just very good rock and roll. Yeah, and not a lot more really. Uh, and I certainly didn't want to mimic that. I was much more interested in you know, what John Coltrane had to say, which seemed to be much more in keeping with punk ethics than, yeah. you know, trying to be a rock and roll band. Um, and I, I stuck to that. I mean, I don't feel, in that sense, I feel, I mean, although I'm, I'm, I'm taking the Owen uh, show up to Rebellion this year. Are you? Which Great. Which will you know, be totally out of place. But actually, in my terms... It's totally in place, because that's what I was doing 40 years ago, pushing people's barriers. You know, well, I've continued to do that, and actually I find, you know, a large amount of what's left of the bank things, right? you know, rather regressive, to say the least. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I'd say that's absolutely yeah. fair. And It's almost we, like if you don't have a mohawk and bondage trousers, 
then you're not punk. Yeah, now, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, like, yeah. Well, what are you doing here? The suit, mm. you're in the wrong place. Mm. It's like, hey, mm. well, the jam wore suits, and, mm. you know, <laughs> and maybe the jam aren't a punk band, but I think they definitely had that same energy and spirit, mm. didn't they, when starting out? No, and they were sort of trying to do something. I mean, that's the, that's the key is trying to do something. I'm not beyond just being a rock and roll band. Yeah, and I'm not altogether sure that initially. Uh, the Pistols were trying to do something I think they were trying to be a rock and roll band yeah. you know, with a very clever management mm-hmm. who was trying to do something yeah um, uh, which isn't entirely to sort of deride them or denigrate them but I mean they, 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 uh, I certainly don't see the Pistols as belonging within what became the punk movement it's interesting isn't it because punk as an umbrella term encompasses so much mm and really inspired and instigated so much beyond it. Mm. But there are certain people who think that it is just this one thing of like mm. a safety pin through your ear mm. and green hair, and and that's not really what it was ever about at all, as we spoke no, about no, earlier on. And it's taken up until now. I mean, there's a huge academic interest, interest in academia. You know, they're writing their sort of scholarly books about the real punk movement and you know the people like those you know what what the history books that you can buy in wh smith about punk are all about those that early thing yeah you know, it was sort of largely a sort of rock and roll fashionable i mean and the american scene to... as well which was almost like that art school oh kind yeah of totally, underground yeah. inspired yeah, sure yeah um and the bohemianism which actually, in a funny way, had far more to do with sort of the good and positive side of um, the hippie thing before. Counterculture, yeah. Yeah, was much more real in 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 the sort of period of punk, you know, which was only months, if not <laughs> a year behind. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm quite certain that you know, if we hadn't come along, or similar people, that you know, Johnny Rotten would be remembered because he was a great rocker. I mean, or Sid doing my way, and that's sort of fantastic. I mean, I love that stuff, but I don't believe that's got anything to do with what people talk when they talk about punk movement. They're talking about people who've who've who've, who've found interest in animal liberation, gender politics, you know, the whole range of stuff. I was going to say, what really fascinates me about Crass, and especially in their relation to the world today, is the preoccupations of that band seem to be what you just said, animal rights, environmentalism, feminism, uh, anti-globalisation, all these things which now are more relevant than ever, aren't they? More prevalent than ever. The difference being is that now... I think rather regrettably, people have made you know jump for single issue politics and for identity politics at the cost of movement politics or citizenship politics. Let's talk more about that. I'd love to talk more about yeah. that and get your ideas on that. Because yeah. I, if I can sort of lead it in and then maybe give you your thoughts, as I do feel like we're in a very almost PC age now Mm -hmm. where it's criticised and condemned to speak out of turn Mm. by, in many cases, people on the left or Mm. people who claim Mm. to represent liberalism. Well, anti-far in America are 
positively deplorable in my view on that level that they're using the very tactics that they claim to be trying to eliminate yeah in other words sort of unpleasant Nazism, really. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't say fascism because fascism is a political ideology, not one I agree with, but it's not Nazism, which was downright thuggery. Yeah. Um, and I don't think, you know, to, to include... I think there is a dialogue to be had with the right, you know, in libertarianism and even with stuff which could be identified as being fascist. I don't think there's an awful lot of dialogue to be had with Nazism, I mean, which isn't to say I wouldn't enter into a dialogue about it. And I get very, very tired of the left, you know, forgetting their own truths. I mean, the moment one starts talking in any way what people see as being right is that either they'll jump at Ayn Rand or they'll say, well, or they'll bring up Hitler. Yeah. Well, people don't bring up Stalin every time you make a slightly left-of-centre remark. You know, an absolute monster. He, I mean, more monstrous because he Killed was more, more of his institu- own people than Hitler. And absolutely. he was more institutional. Yeah, he actually got a, a much more powerful and horrific system going. Yeah. But that seems to be conveniently out of the story. I mean, I've got no respect for either side. I don't like totalitarianism. I don't like politics. But neither do I like what's happening, as it, like you say, in the left, which is becoming completely tied up in its own... Unless I've, you agree with me, you're wrong, and I'm yeah, not interested yeah. in anything you've got to no, say. You're really. a racist, you're a misogynist, yeah, you're a homophobe. Right. Yeah. You're like, whoa, well, hang on a minute. Mm, mm, mm. You've got to listen to an alternative opinion to mm, your own to mm. inform and mm. grow and evolve as mm. a human being, mm. right? Mm. That's what we all need to do, is listen mm. more. Mm. Mm. And I think a key part of this regression, if you want to call it that, or maybe a key part of this breakdown in communication is ironically the one thing that enables us more communication than ever before the internet yeah that and also i think a sort of overall sense of impotency you know that the uh, an impotency which you know ran right through the sort of whole protest movement after the big iraq war marches and things and 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 you know the the, the protest movement was made up, you know, of the whole spectrum. I mean, it wasn't just left, you know, it could equally be right, uh, thinking right. Um, and um, that sort of general disillusionment has led to identity politics where, you know, you wear your identity as a political statement. Um, and my attitude has always been, I don't care a sod what you think you are or what you're pretending to be. You know, where can we get together on this? I mean, you know, that's very, been very much the policy here. I mean, we've had people living here and staying here whose political views I haven't got a minute for. But it doesn't mean I won't sit all evening and talk and share ideas and sometimes become very informed about something I didn't know anything at all about, as are they. And that's called unifying. Um, and sometimes one has to eat your own shit in that. You know? And I get, very, I get very bored with you know, the sort of current PC identity politics. You know, it's so blinkered. Um, I've never met anyone who isn't contactable at some level. In person? In person, yeah. 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 Um, 
equally, I mean, I've I've been writing um, completely off the wall um, sort of aphorisms now for about four or five years, you know. And I haven't got a huge; I've got four thousand followers or something like that. But um, you know, far more hits than four thousand. And I have never once had any form of you fucking bastard twat cunt or whatever mm. none of it at all because people who follow you are actively engaged and relate directly to you and what you stand for and no no no, like, I mean, that... no it's i mean the, the that's what i love about, about actually uh, tweeting is is you build up a demography you know which you could never in a million i mean as a writer i've been writing all my life as a painter as a musician um I don't even know who's got my records or my books or anything. I don't know. I don't know what. What I see is what I see if I go and do a gig. Yeah. I'll get, I'll get some idea of the sort of people who might be interested in what I'm doing. I mean, it's so different now. I'm not doing obvious punk stuff, so I don't get all the... They disappeared years ago, generally <laughs> speaking. Um, I guess what I meant, Penny, was that you're not someone who's like a celebrity, so you don't just have people following you because they're aware of you. Oh, that's that guy, I'll follow him. No, people, that's... People no, who follow you have actively sought you out and... Well, not necessarily. They might have just seen it passing through on the tweet. Right. And that, I mean, and certainly the sort of... It ranges from sort of like... Uh, businessmen and business advisors and people you know very involved in you know that side of the world that I don't wouldn't want much to do with right through to sort of porn stars and, right, right. you know it's this wonderful mixture of people from all over the world you know and I sort of know them I mean I don't I never follow because I'm being followed but if someone tweets me retweets or likes my uh, yeah if it's a retweet because I know about it then I'll follow them right because that way I build up this sort of you know community it's the same deal as what you've done here yes just on it a is sort of digital yeah yeah. Um, yeah and I love it because I know I'm actually I know who I'm operating with yeah you know I don't write for anyone I mean I, and I never well I, I I think in three three occasions I've written back when someone sort of messaged you know books or whatever something you know, yeah. on three, I, do, I, I don't get into a dialogue but anyway what I'm sort of saying is that I don't think I think the same rules apply within um, uh, within the um, internet as, as, as I've applied here that if you're not out to sort of get stuff if you're not out to with an agenda then then, then something inherent is put Put at rest with one, you know, with people who might otherwise be oppositional. There's only one person I've ever, well, I've, I've, I automatically mute the. I don't know how they operate these sort of like soft porn sites. Yeah, yeah, they, like they, bots. Yeah. Well, I just, I, I, I just block them immediately. Yeah. I can't be bothered. But I mean, they're rare. I mean, well, maybe one a month of them comes, and it looks like the same girl with a different name every time. Uh, anyway, so, um, in fact, I'm sure it is the same girl. I'd like to meet her. Yeah, yeah. What's uh, your story? <laughs> um, and then, yeah, and one right wing guy, and actually, he just put up some stuff where I, I. I feel that, you know, I'm not endorsing by following or... Well, in a way, I am. And I thought, no, this is just... 
really unpleasant stuff. It wasn't directed towards me, it was just yeah. some ghastly sort of probably something to do with Israel and Jews. Or yeah, yeah. I just didn't like it, so he went. Um, but apart from that, you know, I, I found it a really gentle community to be mm. with, who, if you put them all together, would be a, you know, a hell on earth, probably. And that's nice. That's a reassuring thing to hear. Mm. Let me ask you this. You just mentioned Israel there. So I had last week on the show Gene Simmons from KISS, who is about as far removed from you ideologically, artistically, mm. personally, mm. As, as, as one could be. Mm. And Gene said to me a quote which really stuck out as he's a big fan and an advocate of capitalism. And yeah. he, he, he calls capitalism the shining light and the hope, bright hope for the world. And now, for me, I can understand why he would think that, because he's a guy whose mum was a Holocaust survivor. Mm. They went to America with nothing, dirt mm. poor, mm. and he somehow, some way, came up with this fantastic idea for a comic book, larger-than-life rock and roll band, and has made millions, mm. billions, and, mm. you know, is one of the richest entertainers mm. on Earth, probably. Mm. So for him, I can understand why that model works, and he mm. sees it as a positive thing, because he thinks it's a way of encouraging people to strive for more and be better. What's your take on capitalism as a system? Obviously a different one to Gene's, perhaps, but I'd love to put you two together, which I can't do, but feeding mm. his thoughts to you now, what would be your response to that? Um... Well, I loathe private ownership. Um, I don't believe in um, profit as being a sort of justifiable or acceptable modus operandi. Um, yeah, I mean, there's no question that capitalism is being massively successful for capitalists, for people like whatever his name is from KISS but in, you know, it's quite a convenient thing to argue but yeah. is he really looking? Well that's it yeah. you know I mean what, what you know is, is has he been to Israel recently and he probably has he, he does a lot of charity work he's a very interesting character I don't agree with most of the things that he says but he's somebody who's so invested in that system and he does give a lot of money to charity and he doesn't talk about it but he does and he's an interesting guy because I think he's on the one hand he's aware of the world outside his door but then on the other hand like a lot of these big rock stars are it's so me 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 and he's so wrapped in his own bubble that I think a lot of perhaps the strife but then he would maybe argue as to why that is or why that is but yeah well I mean I, I mean to be honest I'd need him here I mean I, of course I, yeah yeah um, because you know it sounds it would be a very interesting conversation. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think it's an abysmal way of thought. Yeah, you know, and I can't. I can't well, I lean a lot more towards your yeah. school of thought. Mm, mm, mm. And I mean, the people who I've met who will defend capitalism in that sort of way are the people who can afford to do so. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I know just from living here. I mean, this is not you know in in the sort of one of the wealthiest areas in 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 Britain. You know, the poverty around here is despicable. The poverty, the poverty in I find the poverty in Britain and America utterly incomprehensible and despicable I mean I can in, in Africa where people seem to still have some sort of human spirit some sort of with nothing yeah yeah, yeah. You know, dignity yeah but how anyone can 
talk of capitalism when the number of homeless we see I mean capitalism is so brutal so cruel um, you know yeah we need systems of, you know possibly you know we do need systems to sort of operate but they're all a result they're hangovers I mean, it's a bit like in America. What do you do with all the labourers that you used to need in the cotton fields and in the factories? You incarcerate them. There's over two million young black men incarcerated in America at this very moment. Why? For no reason at all, except they're not needed anymore. Um, They were needed once, so, you know, they were in their multitudes. Now well, those like multitudes that. are jailed up. Criminalisation, isn't it? Now slavery's been abolished. It's yeah, criminalisation of yeah, that. Yeah, and I mean, people. actually, the conditions are worse now for blacks, probably, than they ever have been in America. Yeah. Unless they integrate. Well, integrate actually means becoming a pretend white person. Yeah. You might have a black skin still, so it's going to be difficult. And there we come to Wiley, and that's where I really go for that guy because he's saying, "Well, you can just fuck off. I'm black, and I'm gonna, I'm me. I'm, I'm me. proud of what yeah. I am. Yeah, yeah. And I love that. Yeah. And he's way out with that, and he doesn't make any. He's not a reformist. He's not a. He's not sort of kowtowing to any sort of system. And he probably makes some pretty crass, silly remarks on on the way. Well, so what? He's himself. He's got a right to do that. And I, you know, my admiration goes out to anyone who'll stand alone and do that, because so few people will now. Can we? I think we've almost covered everything I wanted to. Thanks for a really stimulating mm. conversation. I hope you've enjoyed it as mm. well. Mm. I just wanted to talk a bit about some of the the heat, I guess, which you and this place and the band got in the, I guess, the sort of politicised peak. Of crass, just from a an, you know an anecdotal point of view, really the kind of I guess the KGB tape was something that kind of stands out because yeah, well, there's, there's not really any bands around I don't think operating in the mainstream world today that would garner that. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't seem that there's bands that operate within that world that perhaps are a threat anymore. Maybe that's because the powers that be have become <clears throat> so overpowering that they're. You know, impenetrable now, or maybe. No, I think just... they're, but they're actually considerably more penetrable. Um, they're less defined and more penetrable as a result. Because um, you guys were like the topic of conversation in the Houses of Parliament, weren't you? Yeah, and we were under you co- were constant surveillance. A genuine thorn in Thatcher's side. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which is something to be proud of as well. Well, I'm glad about. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what was the story there? It was with a certain song, right? Mother of a Thousand Dead, was it? There was like a... Well, there was two big fronts. We, we, I mean, we, we had moved quite beyond, you know, trying to create sort of instructional and informative art, you know, which is increasingly how we saw, or I saw, Crass as a way of getting out information. You know, we could... We could do an album about nuclear warfare like that, or a single like Nagasaki Nightmare, and the cover of it had information about all the nuclear-related sites in Britain, so people knew. Eventually, we were planning to do a march to each one of them, but that's another story. But so everything really was um, designed to overthrow. I mean, it was cultural terrorism. 
Um, and it was designed to overthrow the government. I mean, we didn't have a particularly clear picture on what might be on the other side of the overthrow that occurred. <laughs> and I think that was probably one of our great failings and probably contributed to our demise, our eventual demise. So we'd look for any break to um, achieve that end. And, of course, the Falklands War was a sort of, you know, a blessing for us, you know, in the sense that it was so obviously a sort of pitiful piece of electioneering. Um, <clears throat> and it left Thatcher open. It was just a way of finding a way in which we could, you know, hoist her on her own petard. And... Um, yeah, we did things like Mother of a Thousand Dead, which got questions in the house and that sort of stuff. And we, at that point, were getting letters from people like Tam Daliel and other sort of Labour um, members of Parliament, you know, sort of saying, fantastic, you know, really like what you're doing, keep at it and that sort of stuff. And we were informing them of stuff that we got. I mean, it was pre-internet, but we were a network, you know, from... How do you rally up and organise on that level, pre-internet? I know I sound like a young kid when I say, how did you do anything without the internet? Well, basically... It's really inspirational to me. Yeah, basically, word of mouth. Um, basically, I mean, I suppose the model would be far more something like French resistance than it would be anything else. Mm -hmm. Being very, very, very wary indeed about any form of alliance... So we never formed any alliance. You know, we could have formed alliance, particularly with people like IRA, uh, what was left of the Baden-Meinhof group. You know, we had personal contact with all these people and all radicals throughout the world. That some, no, not all, of course not. Large numbers of radicals would be, in one way, either visiting. I mean, we had a fantastic visit, a woman with her... I never knew whether it was a boy or a girl, a little kid, maybe about 11, came on their bicycles from Germany. They were part of the remnants. To here? Yeah. Uh, they were <coughs> remnants of the, of the Bader-Meinhof group. They were still doing bank jobs, the two of them, to finance their operations. And A, one never trusted entirely anything anyone told you, uh, and B, you certainly didn't give too much away. Um, so it was much more covert, but also much more expanded. You met the people, and that's the only way it could happen. You wouldn't get some thing coming through there, which could be from anyone. You could judge people on their presence. You know, we got very involved with the Italian anarchist group, um, you know, part of whom, and I can't remember, was, the, was it the Red Brigade? I can't remember what they were called in Italy. But they eventually got associated with the state as well. So, you know, you, we, were, we were isolationist in that yeah, respect. Like but, an island. Yes. But, you know, it was an island to which endless ferries were arriving. You know, yeah. And occasionally we'd get on the one to go off somewhere else. Um, so we managed it that way. Um, the... Uh, the most effective thing that we did was the Thatchergate tapes where we uh, in absolute secrecy um, manufactured a conversation between Thatcher and Reagan from 
um, sliced tape, taking little pieces out of their speeches or public utterances to make the story we wanted. We were originally going to use actors. We had a fantastic actress for Thatcher, who was uh, Eve out of the band, who could do Thatcher perfectly. But we couldn't find a Reagan who we could trust. I mean, you know, there were actors around, but could we trust them to be involved in this? We realised we were going to do something a bit dangerous anyway, so we put this... Uh, we realised it was dangerous because we had classified information which came via a sailor from the Falklands. When they got back, we had a message, meet us in the... I can't remember what... Oh, the Downs Cafe in, um, in Victoria Station. So I went up and met this guy. And he just handed over all this stuff, which was all classified information, high treason to... In, in, in a nutshell. And um, notably about the sinking of the Sheffield, which was, had never been looked at, never been studied, never been mentioned. I mean, we, we were ahead of the game on the Belgrano, for example. We, were, we had information about the Belgrano before anyone started saying, well, it, surely it was heading away. You know, I mean, that was exposed. The thing about the Sheffield was never exposed. I mean, one of the reasons the Sheffield was sunk was because Prince Andrew was on, on the, the other one. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, and I, I mean, at every given opportunity, I've I've brought up that story because it's never been looked at. Well, I mean, yeah, it's twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years ago now, but I still throw it in for good measure. But um, anyway, so we put the tape together, we smuggled it out of the country, and in, at night time, it used to get locked in a box, you know, no one knew it, so people, the, the band and the engineer, who's, you know, really part of the band, and off it went um, to Europe, it was sent to all the newspapers in, big newspapers in Europe, not the British newspapers, for some reason, but we and then it disappeared. Thatcher was re-elected, the idea of this was to, to create such a scandal that uh, it would undermine any chance Thatcher had of being re-elected. But anyway, she got re-elected, and then about three months or two months, I can't remember the times accurately on any of this, but um, there was a sort of... The Pentagon came up with, with what they said were KGB tapes of a conversation between Thatcher and Reagan. Um, and, this, and, they, and they were citing it as the method in which the... KGB were, um, you know, attempting to undermine Western democracy and, uh, and even at some point suggested that this was their way of sort of manufacturing World War Three, which is quite a heavy thing to be sort of <laughs> contemplating if you're sitting around sort of wanting to feed the sparrows. Um, but uh, anyway, pretty good, you know, and then that, that became a massive story and... America was in all the sort of big papers, all taking that line, KGB, rotten bastards, they're trying to undo our sort of wonderful system of existence, blah, blah, blah. And then he came over here, appeared first of all in the Sunday Times, exactly the same story, you know, KGB, KGB. And then, I think it was the Observer, I'm, 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 I'm a bit hazy on all the fact. Anyway, they're all in bits of stuff all over the internet if you want to find out yeah, more accurately. Yeah. But anyway, I think the Observer got in touch on the phone and said, Have you heard about these tapes? You know, obviously, yeah, vaguely. Um, 
well, we think it was you. And I said, oh, do you? Well, very interesting. Well, I don't think we could do that sort of thing. Anyway, I'll try to sort of bullshit my way out. <laughs> and then he said, well, I'd really like to come and visit, if I may. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, fine, if you want to come and visit. Because I was sort of becoming quite intrigued. Anyway, it turned up. And very, very, very slowly, we were sort of saying, well, if we had done him, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And just say hypothetically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I mean, as just as he was in a way. I can't remember. <laughs> like a chess game. Yeah, yeah, it was. And in the end, it seemed okay. Right. Yeah, we did do them. What do you? Um, but um, oh, and oh, that was right. No, it was first of all, if you can get permission from your editors to print the. Um, whole dialogue which gave all of the classified information verbatim then we might confess to the fact that we did so anyway he, he got on the phone to his editor got the okay and we he, he said well I want to see the tape so you know we brought them down all the little sort of sellotape splicing an extraordinary piece of art and next weekend you know, there it was in in its full. So they were true to their word. I have to say that one of the reasons I think they were more interested was because it was a way of sort of poo-pooing the Sunday Times. We'd done it before once before with Fleet Street, where we realised that actually we were just a pawn in them having their little... The media wars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great. I mean, I don't mind that. That's their problem. Uh, we did it with, a, you know, a... Um, teenage magazine a sort of similar less serious but well it was a very serious thing but it wasn't so politically serious anyway net result of that was we were exposed and then actually the real KGB got in touch with us in the guise of a Russian literary magazine would we like to visit their offices just off of Cromwell Road so we said yes, and then the same day, strangely, CBS rang up and said, well, we're very interested in this, we'd really like to hear more about it. So he said, well, we're, we're going to be at 21 Cromwell Road tomorrow, you know. We sort of like, how do we play this? So, And we said half an hour after the appointment we'd made. I mean, we didn't know it was a KGB, we just thought it might be. When we arrived there, we bloody certainly did know it was, because he said, <laughs> oh, well, the wife's out, but you, you, no woman had ever been in that thing. You know, you could almost smell people have been tied up on bed and sort of kicked around. It, had a, it was a nasty place. Smart, but nasty. Um... Anyway, so he was sort of like trying to, obviously trying to sign us up. Well, you know, we'd got information which was sort of dangerous and could be dangerous to the British state. And, you know, we were sort of playing him around, really. We'd been warned by people not to drink the vodka, but, I mean, we were totally pissed within about ten minutes of it. <laughs> because we hadn't, we knew we weren't going to say anything. Anyway, at about, I don't know, I would say we got there at 11 and we'd been chatting for half an hour, knock on the, well, the bell rang. He went to the door and I said, yeah, who is it? CBS. So he said, CBS? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, we invited them, it's all right. And he couldn't sort of say, well, you know, so they came up, you know, whole film crew, the three of them. <laughs> and, I, and it was a room twice as big as this, with a little sort of separate bit over there so I said well you set your stuff up in there it's alright you know and um, 
And then when they were set up, we'd sort of, we realised that if we said Sheffield, they'd go, ooh, you know, and the camera would roll. Otherwise, they were just sort of sitting there smoking and sort of not being very interested. And then we sort of, we played that for about half an hour. And then, I can't remember who said, one of us said, well, look, you're the Americans. You're the Russians. You've got the argument. We're just punks. We're off. So we, <laughs> we, we picked up the uh, vodka and had the happiest train journey home <laughs> I've ever had in my life. But um, but it was it was deadly, and it went on. And I mean, from then on, it was just we were in a very dark place. Um, it became the miners' strike was happening around then. Battle of the Beanfield was happening around then. Um, it all seemed to be darker and worse than it had ever been. It wasn't any. It wasn't good enough anymore. Just to be, we 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 went down to um, the um, valleys and we took a whole van load of food and we did a big benefit and that was our last gig because it wasn't enough. You know, um, just jumping up and down and you know, here's a handout. We just felt cheap and crap. And, uh, you know, the band fell apart bit by bit. And, um, you know, I spent the next, you know, I was sort of like 84. I basically spent the next 20 years just in here trying to work out what the hell do we do now, sort of. Not we, the band, because the band wasn't there anymore. What do I do? Good try, Penny, but nah. And I'd had the same with the, you know, the free festival thing before, though, you know, the the great blossoming of hippie culture into the great Stonehenge Festival, you know, and the guy that, you know, founded it and who I helped found it, you know, died in the second one, murdered by the state. You know, well, that was a sort of the glorious end to the hippie dreams. Um, For me, um, that year of the... The stuff with Thatcher, the what happened with the miners, what happened with the Beanfield. Now this is not going in the right direction. We've got to find something more bigger, grander, more wonderful, more colourful, more beautiful, whatever it is. And I, you know, it took me twenty years. I was writing a lot. You know, wrote novels and plays, painted and all sorts of things. But it was all very, very internal. And then in the year two thousand twenty. Two, 2000 is that yeah yeah in the year 2000 I sort of went out onto the road again and I've been for the last 17 years coming back with a different version of the same thing really it's harder ground now um, in a way um, but it's much more fertile in a way uh, and my argument now is 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 the sort of inward thinking nature of politics that we talked about, you know, identity politics, which is so inward, so sealed, so cocooned within one's own identity. And you know, I'm I'm a deconstructionist. I'm looking to destroy any sense of identity in myself or anyone else. I'm not interested in that because we can't love each other as separate individuals. Um, I mean, look at making love. That's a complete union if it's proper love and not rape. Um, 
you know, it's a true union. Well, actually, that's the situation we're in all the time. It's just we're not feeling it. Um, so what I have to say is, in a way, much more gentle and much more... No, it's more gentle, but it's actually... I think more revolutionary as well. Um, because this can work. <laughs> um, we didn't know where we were going with with Christ, really. Um, we didn't know where, uh, you know, when Wally and myself were working and others were working on the festival, we didn't know where that was going. You know, we'd never conceived that it could end up with him being, you know, basically assassinated. Um, well, not basically, crudely assassinated. Um... So one takes another shot, you know, and in my case it took me 20 years to sort of have the... It's not nothing to do with sort of courage or anything like that, it's to do with having actually, well, yeah, this... this I've got a, I've got an angle, I'm going to go for it, you know, which is all I did with Crass and all I did with Stonehenge and all I've done with anything else I ever have in my life. This is an angle, let's try it to see where it could go. Um... And it's almost like saying, well, I just don't care what you think. You know, you are me and I am you. That's an old man uh, uh, expression. I was, I, was, I, was, I was talking a bit like this to this American guy I met in Mexico last year in a little market. And I was just saying, well, you know, I, you, are, you are I as I am you. And there was this native woman, indigenous woman, walking past, and she, her eyes hit me, and she said, "That's our common greeting." And it was, it is the common greeting of Mayans, is that I am you as you are I. And that's the basic message. I don't care about the differences you want to invent. I don't care about, you know, the opposition you want to create. You know, I am your fluid being and you are my fluid being. And if you want to argue against that, that's your business, not mine. I'm not going to engage with it. I'll listen to you until the end of time. But I'm not going to engage in separation. And that absolute refusal, there's no opposition. You know, when you said, have you no fear? Well, of course I've got no fear because I've no one to be fear fearful of because everyone is myself. I have myself to fear, if, if you like, if I chose to look at it that way, but I don't look at it that way. Um, so, in that way, it's almost diametrically opposed to sort of current political thought. Um, and yeah, you could say it's just a belief system. Yeah, it's just a belief system. But it's one that I know works. You know, I, 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 the, in in the sense of sort of radical vision, I don't have fear as a barrier in front of me to prevent me from seeing possibilities. Um, and in, and within my own heart and soul, you know, I just feel at peace. You know, I feel, you know, I don't mind if I die now. I've got no, no, you know, I feel at peace. I don't see the difference between my manifest existence or my manifest not existence. I don't see the difference between you or I or us and the tree. There is no difference. doesn't mean I can't step into the sort of material 
cloak and sort of talk about those things because that's where we currently all exist. But my singular aim is to just tell people, well, actually, it doesn't need to be like that. That's a narrative. Do you, Do you think we can go back? No, we can go forward. In terms of pulling away from the material? Or do you think we've gone too far into no, that world? No, not at all. I mean, it's nothing. It's ether. I mean, it's and the material world is actually, well, I mean, in, 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 is illusory. You know, that's the Buddhist outlook. But I mean, my I'd go further and say it's delusory. It's a delusion, not an illusion. Illusion is sort of quite passive in its um, position. A delusion is a self-imposed a trick trick yeah and it is and there's nothing there you know and when I say there's nothing there there really is nothing there I mean if you look at it in quantum terms there is nothing there it's just bits of particle floating around doing yeah. things and if you look at it further in quantum there actually stuff increasingly there the, the idea that things only operate under observation you know they don't have an identity they will adopt an identity depending upon circumstances effectively. So they can change, you know, there is no such thing as a set nature of a particle, quite apart from the fact that at any one time it might also be a wave. And you won't see the particle when it's being a wave, and you won't see the wave when it's being a particle, but it's actually not being anything different. Well, actually, that's what's happening. There is nothing there. You know, well... Given that, you know, then I don't know to what degree one can cherry-pick. I don't know. I mean, I, that's that's my human experiment now. How much of this can I just remove entirely from the equation? How much of it needs to be given specific manifestation, i.e. be singularized, etc., etc.? In terms of sort of human relationships, I found that reasonably simple, you know, is that I don't recognise any difference. Maybe it means I don't might not like someone's perfume or might not like their makeup or something, but there is no difference. As you know, we are one, there's no question in my own mind about that. Um and my relationship with things that's how I perceive it. But the very fact that I have a relationship and I am perceiving still continues to worry me. I haven't yet gotten to the point where, uh, you know, I cease to perceive or have a sense of relationship. Um, I mean, that's the next step, you know. Uh, well, not it's, it's probably a step backwards or a step into I don't know, but that's... And I do that because I think it's serious and it matters. Um, I think, you know, if you like, people like myself let everyone down with the failure of our policies, you know, back in the 80s. You know, we wanted to overthrow the government. We wanted to overthrow all sense of governance. We wanted, you know, to, to be a part of the sort of great birth of freedom. We just hadn't got the vocabulary right. And, um, 
you know, on the one hand, people sort of say, well, aren't you proud or pleased that, you know, yeah, I like the fact that you can buy, you know, decent vegetarian food at Tesco's. You know, things have changed. Yeah. And they've changed because of what we did. But equally well, I don't, you know, I, uh, it's not it. You know, and sort of gender politics is, is, is diametrically opposed to what I'm saying. It's precisely not what I'm saying. I mean, I went to a, um, a big conference, a sort of conference of sort of alternative cultural thought just recently, and they were very proud to have a sort of queer cafe. And I, find it, I found it really aggressive yeah. in there. I didn't want to stay. I was going to have a cup of tea, maybe have a chat with someone, but actually I thought, oh, no, thank you. I really feel it. I could feel it in my gut. Yeah, you know, my intellect was saying, "Oh, come on, Pen. You know, this is sort of this is radical politics." No, my gut was saying, "Get out of here. Go to a bloody Starbucks, and relax." <laughs> um, that's well, it's not... like it's like having a straight cafe, isn't it? Yeah, it's totally. the same thing. This yeah. is a straight cafe. Yeah, yeah. And you have straight people mm. in here. Mm. So, oh, mm. how inclusive. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I get it. I, I do sometimes understand the thought process behind aggressively pushing something forward obviously feel like there's a need for that approach and I yeah, understand that. Yeah, but it's the that, wrong it's, one. I mean, passionate, you know, the, the, the difference yeah. between, I mean, I was talking, you know, with, with a film crew last week, you know, and they were going on about anger. Anger's really important. It isn't at all. Passion is. Yes, yeah. of course it is. Conviction. Uh, but, but unless what one's offering is, I mean, one of the greatest ways of, of, of persuading, if one wants to persuade anyone to becoming a vegan for example is to is to invite them to dinner and cook them the nicest food they've ever tasted in their life and they're going to go god blimey it doesn't cost as much either mm-hmm. you know that's you i mean better I, after eating it yeah and I, I and i mean i've found veganism is one of those things a bit like sort of you know the, the sort of trans thing at the moment is people got militant yeah well go away I thought we'd be all, you know. I thought I, we'd become vegetarians because we love animals and we're animals. So can we have respect? I mean, when the ALF started sort of, you know, beating up people, well, you you, you mustn't beat up a rat in an, but you can beat up people. That's pr- sort of pretty crazy thinking, and a lot of the stuff's gone that way. Anyway, I sort of so. Um, passion, devotion, love. You know, in 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 its unconditional, t- uh, those are the roots. Uh, they're the they're the they're the font of of freedom, and um, they're also the font of action, appropriate and positive and real action, not stuff which is just sort of decorating one's ego or one's sense of identity the identity being exclusively an ego preoccupation um and i think that you know that 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 egotism is the sort of school one tends to like to think i mean you you hinted at it earlier it tends to like to think of being a sort of right-wing Engagement, you know, the, the rampant individual looking after their own ends. Well, what are those people in queer cafe if they're not rampant yeah. individuals? Okay, yes, they've got some form of argument, 
But by golly, I've been following the arguments and some of them are pretty skew-whiffed, to say the least. I mean, men don't behave themselves in their own toilets. <laughs> so I can really sympathise with some of the women who are just not up for that. Yeah. I really can. Are we good? Hmm? Penny, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. I'll see how we talk to you. That was, that was is well timed, is it? Yes, it was. I don't know, we've got a wanderer on the premises. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Just in case I needed proof. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I'd have let him wander. Thank you so much. It was a that. real pleasure. That was everything I hoped it would be and more. Um, Excuse my notepad. I got this given free oh, yeah. at a press event the yeah. other day. <laughs> uh, thanks for a great talk. Thank you for the wine. And before I go, I'm just going to have a little uh, wander around as well, I think, and yeah. dr drink it all in one yeah. last time. Yeah, of course. Um, do you want another cup of tea? Well, we'll do another wine. I'll take a wine for the road. Why not? It'd be yeah. rude not to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks very much, yeah. mate. What passing bells for these who die as cattle? Only the monstrous anger of the guns. Only the stuttering rifles' rapid rattle can patter out their hasty horizons. No mockeries now for them. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> <laughs> 